Tonight's talk is titled, Living in Delusion, Living in Truth. This month, my first three talks were about the seven factors of enlightenment, the qualities of mindfulness, investigation, energy, joyous interest, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And tonight I want to talk about putting these factors to work and putting them to their job, which is to cut through delusion and to develop wisdom. So we'll be talking about the movement from delusion or ignorance to wisdom and truth, leading to this unshakable freedom of heart and mind that the Buddha taught. The word for delusion in Pali is moha. And what do we mean by this this word in Buddhism? In Buddhism specifically, we're talking about not seeing things clearly as they are. When delusion is present, we are living in illusion. So delusion means of, of illusion. So we're living in illusion when delusion is present. When delusion is present, there is misunderstanding about the nature of reality or the nature of things. There's a fundamental ignorance about how things are. Delusion arises from a mind that is muddled or clouded and can't see clearly. This muddlement and this cloudiness leads to distorted perception, which we'll be talking about quite a bit later. When delusion is present, we can't pay attention in a way that gives rise to clear seeing and wisdom. In Theravada Buddhism, this word uh, moha or delusion is pretty much synonymous with ignorance, or avijja, which is a failure to see or to know, so quite related. Ignorance, the lack of insightful seeing. Ignorance is often depicted as a person with a blindfold on, or somebody who has cataracts in their eyes, can't see at all or can't see very well. It's blurry. We talk about three roots or foundations of suffering in Buddhism. There's greed or grasping, aversion, and this one of delusion or ignorance. And of these three roots, delusion or ignorance is considered the foundational root of suffering. Ignorance or delusion is what gets the whole ball rolling or keeps it rolling, leading to grasping, clinging, becoming, and suffering. Some of you will recognize those as links in the chain of conditioning, the um, dependent co-arising. And in this, ignorance is listed as the first of the 12 chains of conditioning that lead to suffering. Where it all starts, though you can also see this chain as a circle. But when there are descriptions of it, they start with ignorance, the foundational one. So it's pretty important to understand 
what is meant by delusion or ignorance and what we can do about it. Delusion anesthetizes us. When delusion is present, we're living in imaginary worlds or illusionary worlds. And there's a certain sense of protectedness with that. It gives us a sense of control, but yet it's out of touch with reality. T.S. Eliot said, most people can't handle too much reality. We acclimate slowly to being in touch with reality. Delusion uh, takes a while uh, to work with. If it were easy to be present all the time, in touch with the truth all the time, well, we would be. But it isn't so easy. It takes time. You could say that alongside our our deep wish and yearning to know the truth is also... uh, an urge not to know the truth, (laughs) manifesting as resistance in meditation. Trungpa Rinpoche said that meditation is irritatingly down to earth. So there's many forms of, of ignorance or delusion. Denial is one form where we, uh, refuse to see, or, or the mind finds ways to, it actually creates, I've read that it creates neural uh, pathways in the mind that block one from seeing, or it sequesters off what we don't want to see and um, makes it inaccessible to be seen. Sometimes this help happens to us when Uh, We resist seeing the truth of what our experience is, perhaps the unacceptable states of mind or unacceptable to us states of mind that can arise. This can be one form of delusion or denial. Denial is a form of delusion. There's societal delusion, denial, like around things like climate change. There's delusion due to our conditioning around race and socioeconomic class that that we often can't see because it's the water we swim in. I remember my first uh, job as a therapist. I worked in the inner city. Actually, I worked there for quite a number of years. And um, it was interesting because I went into this work from a middle-class background And I tried to counsel my clients with middle-class values. I assumed those were the values of everybody. And it was uh, interesting. It took me time to learn that actually those values didn't apply in this situation, but I was blind to them because it was my conditioning. It was the water that I had swum in. And so that's a type of ignorance or delusion, not to be able to see that. The fundamental ignorance that we're going to be talking about uh, a large part of this talk is the ignorance of not seeing clearly how life is, which is where our problems lie in the spiritual path. It's the misperception of reality.
it's a misperception of the three characteristics of anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Here's a joke that shows one um, example of delusion around anatta. A man is sitting at his computer and little thought bubble. I Google myself, I get a hit, therefore I am. So when delusion is present, there's a misalignment with reality. And so there's a sense of dis-ease or uneasiness. Delusion or ignorance will always cause disharmony and suffering because it's not in alignment with the way things are. I find delusion fascinating for one reason, because it really messes with our minds, because by definition, we don't know we're deluded. When we're deluded, we don't know we're deluded, because part of delusion is not being able to see clearly. Once somebody said to Ajahn Chah, I can observe desire and aversion in my mind, but it's hard to observe delusion. He laughed and said, You're riding on a horse and asking where the horse is. The Buddha said that one sign of wisdom is seeing our own foolishness. That's actually the way out. It is to see delusion, but delusion's slippery because its very nature is to not be seen or not to be seen clearly. What perpetuates delusion? One way that delusion is perpetuated is uh, the disconnect that we live with, the disconnect from presence, all the endless distractions and the endless uh, fascinating stories in our minds, not really landing in the present moment, not landing here, living in the fabricated stories of our minds. This perpetuates delusion. We just make it all up in our minds. And later, when I talk about perception, we'll see where the problem is there. Mindfulness helps us land here in the present moment. We need that for starters, to arrive, to be here. That's uh, the beginning of uh, clearing up delusion, is to arrive. So we all know that in our practice, a lot of our practice is just to come back and to come back and to come back to arrive here so that we can see. When we live disconnected in the stories of our mind, um, a lot of delusion happens. A lot of delusion happens. We can't talk about delusion without talking about perception. So we're going to look for a while here at perception and how... uh, how it can lead to delusion, and how it can lead to the misperception of fundamental truths of reality. So perception is the factor of mind that takes sense contact and then goes through the files in the mind and names it, decides what it is. 
So perception is a quality that interprets what is seen, heard, smelled, felt, tasted, and thought. Perception uses memories, associations, conditioning, old conditioning, so that we can know what it is, what the, what the thing is. It's an interpretation, a best guess, based on prior experience. And since it's based on prior experience, it's prone to error. It takes a few reference points, tries to connect the dots and create a picture. It's like the connect-a-dot game. I'll give you an example. One day a few years ago, I was sitting by a pond. I think I've mentioned in other talks I like to sit out in the woods a lot. I was sitting by a beaver, uh, beaver dam in a marsh near a marsh pond. It was a windy day, I remember. I was meditating. I heard this crackling sound. And I watched perception. It was so interesting. I watched perception flip through all the files of my mind trying to decide what this sound was. It was like, no, 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 no. Finally, it wasn't sure, but finally it decided that the closest Thing that it came to was the sound of water running over rocks. So that's, that's the, the, what it perceived. Well, um, shortly thereafter, a huge tree fell down behind me. And that was the actual sound, was of a tree falling. But it didn't have, it was very close behind me, only a few feet. Um, but there was no file in my mind for that. It's like there was no past conditioning or file that could be accessed to name that. So the best guess was water going over rocks. Misperception. Later I was uh, sitting on a bridge uh, over another creek and something touched my hand. Again, the, the, the... Files whipped through, the perception whipped through the files, and the mind decided it was a wild animal. Perception also likes to err on the side of caution. That's another thing it likes to do. So decided it was a wild animal. I opened my eyes, and it was a neighbor's dog. So again, good guess. (laughs) Tried to guess, but it wasn't uh, the correct guess. And this is how uh, perception works. It fills in a lot of information automatically, and uses lots of assumptions based on past conditioning. It's said, for example, in the act of seeing that 20% of the information is the, uh, the actual sense contact with the eye door, and 80% of the information is supplied by the brain. A couple of years ago, I went to the eye doctor and he told me I was farsighted. Um, I told him that he didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I said, I've never been farsighted in my life. And he says, well, when you get older, uh, when you're younger, you can make up for it. And then when you get older, your eyes don't make up for it anymore. I said, oh, I wasn't sure about this. And so he had me read this chart on the door. And I read it. It was fine. Then he gave me these glasses and said, now read the chart on the door. It was so much sharper, right? But I didn't know that before because it looked fine to me, normal. 
um, I had filled in a lot of information from how I saw in the past. And then when he gave the glasses and my uh, perception was sharpened, so to speak, it's like, oh, okay, I was missing all of that. What happens with perception is it goes from bare attention to greater and greater conceptualization. And then it it goes over into uh, mental proliferation. So, for example, we're sitting here in the hall. And we hear a bird call. So perception may first notice, oh, bird call. Then, oh, that's a robin. So a little more detail. And then, oh, what are robins doing here in January? So that, that's how perception works. It's bare, and then it categorizes further, and then it can lead into mental proliferation, all the thoughts and stories. Once perception has labeled what something is, often that ends the inquiry we stop paying a whole lot of attention. It has some evolutionary benefit because it conserves energy. It's a trait. For example, if I went to a door, and every time I went to a door, I looked at a doorknob, and I had to figure out what a doorknob was for. and That would be uh, a lot of use of energy. So it's my mind sees the door, or perception sees the door, and knows it's a doorknob, and knows what it's for, and, and that's all pretty convenient. So in that way, that's great. But on another hand, because the object seems f- familiar, we start to, at a certain point, see our concept of the object and not the object ourself, itself. One time this became very obvious to me was when I was working in the inner city. I worked a lot with Puerto Ricans because I speak Spanish. So my, uh, the person I was working with was sitting in the room with me, and she'd only been in the United States a few months. She was new here. At one point, she looks out the window, and she's, Rebecca, there's, she says in Spanish, but I'll say it in English for you guys. She said, there's this most beautiful bird out there. And... I love birds. I was like, oh, really? And I go to the window, and I look out, and I said, oh, that's just a blue jay. They're very common. That's what came out of my mouth. And when I thought, I I was so shocked by my response in some way, because when I thought about it, I didn't see the blue jay. I saw my concept and ideas about blue jays. She saw the blue jay. She had the freshness of seeing it for the first time, right? And uh, she actually saw that bird, and blue jays are beautiful birds, is the truth of the matter. When you think they're common and kind of pesty, well, then they don't seem so beautiful. But when you look at them, really look at them, they're beautiful birds. She taught me a lot. So a concept is a generalization, a rounding off of the truth. And what's really happening is that each event or each moment is fresh. And with meditation, we're attempting to cultivate the mind 
and the heart that can see that way, that can see each breath as fresh, each step as fresh. So as we move from bare attention to more and more detailed perception and into conceptualization and then into mental proliferation, thoughts and feelings about what is seen, um, we move further and further from the way things are to the way we construct them to be. And repeating this over and over leads to these deep neuronal, neuronal, well, grooves of neurons in, in the mind. Perception leading to thoughts, views, opinions, assumptions. And these views and assumptions, as they're repeated, become ossified. They they, um, then start to influence perception. It's like a vicious circle. Then they start to influence us, and we start to see what agrees with the view of the mind. The mind doesn't like dissonance so much. It likes to see things that fits with our view of reality or our old conditioning, you could say. This too leads to a lot of errors of perception and a certain rigidity in heart and mind. It limits flexibility I had a really good lesson in this when I was 22 and I went to live in Nicaragua after I graduated from college. I went to Nicaragua to teach English and I was kind of a lefty-leaning college student and I was um, interested in Nicaragua because for those of you my age or older, you'll remember that there was a a war going on in Nicaragua at that time, the Contra War, um, where our government was uh, supporting folks on the borders trying to overthrow the the Sandinista government. And I was really curious about what was going on down there, so that's why I went to teach English there. And I was teaching at the American school, which was kind of strange. And in the school, the secondary principal was uh, pretty, pretty far to the left, communist, pretty far to the left. And the director of the school was pretty far to the right, uh, politically speaking, both of them. And after something would happen in the weekend, uh, some incident with the Sandinistas or the Contras or whatever, they would both come to school the next uh, Monday with their interpretation of what had happened. And they always fit exactly their political views. There was no, so the, the, um, the secondary principal would come and say, Wow, Sandinista's great, blah, 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 they did blah. And the, and the um, principal would come in and say, oh, those damn Sandinistas, blah, 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 blah. And it would be the same thing that happened, but their perceptions would be so different. And I would watch this happen. I learned so much. I was young. I learned so much about uh, how views and opinions um, limit what we see when we're attached to them, when we're attached to them. I guess you don't need to go to Nicaragua to see that kind of 
example <laughs> either. <laughs> but for me, it stuck out uh, because that's where I learned about it a lot. Because I, I think I had been some more attached to my opinions, but then when I watched that dance, I was like, hmm. So we can learn to um, relax around our views and opinions so that there's some room for new information to end, enter, to come in. A story from Lao Tzu, the, uh, I believe would be a Tao philosopher from many, many centuries ago. He said, Once upon a time, a man whose axe was missing suspected his neighbor's son. The boy walked like a thief, looked like a thief, and spoke like a thief. But the man found his axe while digging in the valley, and the next time he saw his neighbor's son, the boy walked, looked, and spoke like any other child. Again, how our conditioning uh, limits what we see. So with meditation, we learn to hold our views and opinions more loosely, and this can bring in flexibility. We update the files. It's partly what we're doing here. One way we experience delusion on retreat, so there's two major ways I'm going to talk about this. One way is when our old and deeply uh, entrenched unhelpful conditioning comes to the surface. And then later I'll talk about... um, our conditioning around permanence, dukkha, not self. But let's talk first about when old, deeply entrenched, unhelpful conditioning comes to the surface. I call them our karmic knots. Really tenacious conditioning in the mind, often was developed when we were young. And, and because it's developed when we're young, it's, it's very woven into our perception So one view people sometimes bring up are one of these deeply conditioned patterns that we often hear about as teachers is a sense of unworthiness or I'm not good enough or um, a a wish for perfectionism and, and a feeling like one has to be improved, whipped into shape, right? And what happens when we have this conditioning arising or conditioning influencing us is that we see, as I said, information that only confirms that view. And we disregard information that doesn't. Again, the mind doesn't like dissonance. It likes things to agree with its conditioning. So perhaps you move in the middle of a sitting and the mind will go, see, I told you, you're no good at this. You're not good enough. And then completely overlook the fact that you've been sitting here for a week or two weeks or a month doing this really difficult and uh, courageous thing going on a retreat. The mind skips the non-confirming information and latches on to the confirming information. I'm sure some of you have seen this happen.
Sometimes one little thing will trigger a whole chain of conditioning. Get stuck in some uh, delusional loop in the mind. One time many years ago, I was on retreat at IMS in the three-month course, and um, my ex-boyfriend was also on retreat. And he had, uh, we had split up um, a, a number of months before, not too long, but a little while before, and it hadn't been a great split up uh, for me. It had been very painful. And uh, so at one time, point in the retreat, you know, the bulletin board at IMS, that's like, what's happening? You know, major entertainment, right? So there's this note on the bulletin board in his handwriting to this woman that I was pretty sure he was interested in. This started a process in my mind of um, a whole chain of thoughts and emotions, very painful ones of, okay, so now he's interested in her and um, ending with I'm unlovable and loneliness and just, I can't remember what the exact order of it all was, but it was pretty painful. And... um, it was actually really interesting by the time. It took about a week till I stabilized around it. And I learned so much about emotions and identifying with them and not identifying with them and, and the whole thing. It was great. But at the end of the retreat, I said to him, I'm like, what's with the note to whoever you know, she was? He looked at me and said, I didn't write any notes on that retreat. So... And I believed him because he's not the right note-writing type, right? So, so my mind took this little trigger of a note on the board and created this whole world that I lived in for a week. Not all the time, but, but it, it would come up again. I'd see the flash on the note and then the thoughts. And the, By the end, actually, I went through it very quickly. In about, at first, it took a long time. I'd get very mired in the emotions. And then at the end, it'd be like image of the note, thought, thought, motion, done. It would be done like in six, seven seconds. Um, But I created this whole reality that was, it fit my conditioning that I was unlovable, but um, it wasn't true. And uh, we do this a lot. I mentioned uh, one morning here, or I don't think it was a talk, I think it was in the morning, I mentioned the time I was standing in the line at IMS for lunch with the for about lunch for about 100, 120 people. I was fourth in line, and I had the thought that there wouldn't be enough for me. So, again, this is old conditioning, triggered. Um, and in those moments when I, ha- I, I believed that, then I had the mindfulness, woke up, and was like, oh, okay. Actually, with mindfulness, I could update the files a little bit and realize there was going to be enough food for me. Um, So, we, so these karmic knots are so tenacious, we have to really pay attention to them. They really, uh, we identify strongly with them. And over time, we, we learn to break it. There's a, a, but it takes time. Here's a story from uh, Shambhala Sun magazine. Somebody talking about Grace Sherenson, talking about how Dar- Darlene Cohen uh, is, uh, used to be, or she was a Zen teacher, she's not alive anymore. Darlene Cohen says that there are 300,000 times. The first 100,000 times is noticing the pattern or the rising of discomfort. 
The second 100,000 times is observing where this comes from in the body. The third 100,000 times is when one begins to have a choice. We have already watched the pattern. We've seen the consequences of it. And now we have a choice about whether we continue to repeat it. When I read that, I feel so much compassion for us. 300,000 times with some of these really tenacious conditioning, that's how long it takes. So perception, by rounding off and guessing what's happening based on prior condition, it's often colored by delusion and not seeing things clearly as they are. When we haven't sat down to study mind and body, we tend to have misperception about the nature of this mind-body-heart process. So this is what I'm going to talk about for the rest of the the talk. This is where delusion becomes a real problem. I'd like to read uh, a little bit from the Vipalasa Sutra, um, which talks about our misperception of reality or the distortions of perception of reality that we live with if uh, we don't do this investigation that we're doing here. Or it's sometimes called the four hallucinations of perception. And this uh, translation is from Tanisro Bhikkhu. He uses the word uh, stress often for dukkha. So just so you know that. Translated, so it's his translation from the Pali and um, the Access to Insight website. So this is what happens when delusion is present in our perception of reality. Perceiving constancy in the inconstant, or you could say perceiving permanence in the impermanent, Perceiving constancy in the inconstant, pleasure in the stressful, self in what's not self, attractiveness in the unattractive. Beings, destroyed by wrong view, go mad out of their minds. Bound to Mara's yoke, from the yoke they find no rest. Beings go on, go on to the wandering on leading to birth and death. But when awakened ones arise in the world, bringing light to the world, they proclaim the Dharma, leading to the stilling of dukkha. When those with discernment listen, they regain their senses, seeing the inconstant as inconstant, the stressful as stressful, what's not self as not self, the unattractive as unattractive. Under taking right view, they transcend all dukkha and suffering." So these four uh, misperceptions or hallucinations of perception or distortions of perception where we see permanency when impermanence is the truth and we see pleasure where there's suffering and we see self where there's 
really not self. And we see beauty in what is not so lovely. I'll explain a little bit uh, later some, what some of those things mean. But the first three you'll recognize. You'll recognize the first three as anicca, dukkha, anatta. Right? The three marks of existence are the three fundamental truths or characteristics of life. Anicca, impermanence. Dukkha, many ways to translate suffering, stress, unsatisfactoriness. And anatta, the not-self. If we don't pay close attention, we don't see these truths clearly. We see permanency. We see self. And what's the problem here? The problem is that when we see permanency, or we see pleasure in dukkha, or we see self and experience, this condition's clinging. And this conditions all the ways that we control and manage and hang on and cling to experience. And the more that we see permanence and the more that we see enduring self, the deeper this view comes. It's self-reinforcing in the same way that I was talking about earlier. Meditation gives us a chance to clear up perception to see things more closely as they truly are. And when we see clearly impermanence and dukkha and not self and unloveliness, the fourth one, which I'll talk about later, and when we see these clearly, this conditions letting go. Letting go of clinging, freedom, heart and mind. So we want to use these factors of awakening that we were talking about. We want to use mindfulness and investigation and energy and joyful interest and calm and concentration and equanimity. These factors of awakening allow perception to be clarified. That's their job, to support clear seeing leading to wisdom. So we're clearing up perception. The fourth one, the um, seeing the loveliness and what's unlovely, it's, it's not one we talk about so much. Uh, The first three we talk about a lot. This fourth one we don't talk so much about in the United States anyway. Um, There's there's always a fear that will condition a lot of aversion, which isn't the point. I'm thinking of one example. We may think that uh, food is, is lovely, but then when you chew it, what happens to it? Your mom told you not to chew with your mouth open for good reason. Um, and there's times when we'll tune in on retreat, we'll tune into kind of the drudgery of caring for a body. On one level, we can say a human body is a very lovely thing, but on another level, it's not so lovely. It's a, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and the idea with this seeing um, 
what's unlovely is unlovely isn't to have aversion to bodies or food or things like that, but to, uh, again, lessen clinging. That's what the purpose of all of this uh, um, clarified perception is, to lessen clinging. I also want to say a few words about... um, You could say two different levels of reality. We often talk about the conventional level of reality and absolute reality. So on the conventional level, we may still think that food is is beautiful or the body is beautiful. Um, We can count on some level of permanence. Your bowl of oatmeal isn't going to disintegrate from the time that you take it and bring up a bite to your mouth, you can assume that that's uh, still going to be there. And there's pleasure in the world. And there is some conventional sense of ourself. So we're not trying to get rid of all of that. Sometimes on retreat, if uh, if we get too far into absolute reality and and it's too intense, um, we can take refuge in conventional reality. Because it's a truth, too. I remember one time at the retreat center, again, many years ago, when I was eating in the dining room, and suddenly the people walking by didn't... um, it's like they didn't exist. There was, there, I was touching into a different level of, of reality. And I just wasn't in a space for this, to assimilate this information at that point. Um, so I retreated to the relative reality of my bowl of oatmeal and the fact that I could eat it. And uh, I, I was like, this is, this is uh, I think it was cornmeal. This is cornmeal. This is 1990-whatever it was. And... Uh, and it was really helpful. It was like, okay, it, this bowl of oatmeal really does exist, or cornmeal. It was cornmeal. There's also the what we call the absolute level of reality. And in this absolute level of reality, there's constant change. Things are changing so fast we can't even keep up with it. And there's the truth of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness that we're not going to find the happiness that we're looking for in the things of this world because they're so undependable. And there's the truth of, of, of this thing we call self is really a verb, not a noun. It's this constantly changing process. And there's a certain uncontrollability that, that uh, is related to that. The highest realization, we could say, is when we can hold both of these uh, realities and use them as appropriate. And since we perceive the conventional level of reality pretty much all the time, we emphasize on retreat this absolute level of reality. But we don't need to make the mistake that we're somehow going to annihilate our self, our relative self. It doesn't work that way. This honing of perception 
is to help us see this more absolute level of reality, to, to be able to come close enough to our experience with a mind that's clear enough that we can see what's happening. A kind of bare attention level. The meaning of Vipassana is to see clearly. So we purify our perception so we can see clearly the truth of anicca, dukkha, anatta. Mindfulness makes this possible. Mindfulness and all of the factors of awakening. Helpful to have this beginner's mind, as I mentioned in another talk. My partner is a, a dean at a community college, and um, he organizes a certain, certain classes that um, people in the community take, and there's one on glass blowing, and he went to the first class one time when the, the master glass blower was um, talking to new students. And he said something so great that my partner came home and told it to me. He said to them, the new students, I want you to slow down and savor being a beginner. As an artist, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I spend most of my time trying to get back to seeing that glass as a beginner. In some ways, we're trying to get back to seeing life as a beginner. And it's that um, open-mindedness, that don't-know-mind, with uh, mindfulness and investigation that allows us to do that. There's a great book I read recently called Eyes Wide Open, Cultivating Discernment on the Spiritual Path by Marian Kaplan, and she says, Rather than placing all of our attention on trying to know everything, which is often a defense against the frightening vulnerability of our human condition, Let us strive to not know and let the barriers erected by our spiritual arrogance and superiority be worn down until we become permeable to the wisdom of life itself. So we come close as we can in our practice to the truth of each moment, and let the wisdom of life teach us itself. Insight comes out of this direct connection with the flow of life. So it's pretty intuitive We'll have an insight, we'll realize something, and then it's often translated into some kind of thought. And then we tend to ruminate on the insight. And the rumination, that's parts extra, just so you know. 
you've had the insight. And if we get lost in a lot of thoughts about insight, then um, it's best to drop it. You've already gotten what you need. And then coming back again to that simplicity of the moment-to-moment experience, coming back to investigating the present moment. Meditation can create a certain amount of cognitive dissonance. Um, We find that as our practice deepens that many of our beliefs are challenged by what we see in our meditation practice. Sometimes it may even seem like we've signed up. We're getting a little bit more than we signed up for. Pema Chodron says, the truth is inconvenient. Somebody else, I think several people have said this, I don't even know where it started. Before the truth sets you free, it tends to make you miserable. So there's um, the challenging part of meditation is the, um, the cognitive dissonance, dissonance that is created and... Um, Being okay not knowing. Opening to new and deeper levels of truth. To do this journey, we need to be strong. And two qualities that Marcia has mentioned in her talks, metta and equanimity, are very helpful in this way. Equanimity gives us a steadiness and the flexibility to be able to undertake this journey that may shake us up a bit. And metta, metta softens the heart and mind. And the inclusivity of metta, metta, the unconditional kindness or unconditional inclusivity, makes the heart's both strong and gentle at the same time. These two qualities allow us to soften and connect with the truth of things as they are. You could say that meditation is strengthening our capacity for the truth. It's a path of unmasking our deceptions, our our delusions, and bringing out, at the same time, the intelligence and the love that exists in this mind and heart. Mariana Kaplan again, she says, What is brighter, more essential, and more true can shine forth when we break down the illusions we have overlaid onto reality. In seeing, there exists the possibility to take far greater responsibility for our lives, to open ourselves to more understanding, more heartbreak, 
more challenge, more expansion, and also to serve humanity in progressively deeper ways. This great process of purification is one in which we see the layers of misperception and misinterpretation and delusion that we have layered onto reality. And in this way, we purify our vision and discover what is real and true. And every moment of mindfulness puts another pinhole in the veil of delusion. We are more and more able to see through delusion to the truth of things. Relaxing into the truth of things is a huge relief. There's not that dis-ease because we're in alignment with reality. It's a place where we can rest. So in our practice, we have moments of connecting with the truth of things, moments of opening to the vast expanse of our hearts to see the rising and passing of phenomena, moments of compassion, moments of open-hearted interest. And all of these move us towards freedom from delusion and ignorance, towards wisdom and compassion. I'll end with a story about uh, expansion of vision, you could say. It's from Sharon Salzberg's book on faith. For my 40th birthday, my friend Carol gave me a small picture book. In the center of its vivid red cover were the one-word title, Zoom, and the author's name, I Curious, I opened the book and on the first page saw an abstract image of something red and pointy. The next page showed a colorful rooster whose comb was the image I'd just seen. This is a book with no words in it about a rooster, I mused. How very peculiar to receive this as a gift when I'm turning 40, not four. Carol smiled, urged me to go on. I turned the page and saw a picture of children looking through the window of a house at the rooster. Oh, I said, it's not a book about a rooster. It's about some children who live on a farm. As I turned more pages, the children and the house diminished in size until they proved to be pieces of a toy village being arranged by a little girl. Oh, now I understand, I thought. It's a book about a child, and she is a central figure in this story. The other figures were just her toys. A page later, the girl playing with the houses turned out to be part of an illustration on the cover of a book being held by a boy. And so on it went. 
As I turned the pages, I came to conclusion after conclusion about what the book was really about. Okay, now I get it. This is a story about a boy who is on an ocean liner holding a book with a cover picturing a child playing with a miniature village. But when the entire ocean liner turned out to be part of a billboard posted on the side of a bus, my confidence in my interpretations collapsed. The bus proved to be part of a scene on a TV screen being watched by a cowboy in the desert, which turned out to be the illustration on a postage stamp, which was on a postcard in the hands of a group of people standing on an island beach. Before I could try to reach another conclusion about the subject of this book, a turn of the page showed the island as seen by a pilot in a small plane. Several pages later, through swirls of clouds, I saw the earth, a jewel-like globe floating in infinite space, then simply a distant white dot. Opened to an immensity of perspective, my vision included every image in an expansive sweep of vision, but was not limited by any one of them. Let's sit for a minute. How very nice to sit with you all. I love sitting in the winter and uh, the coziness of us all here. So thank you for your practice, your perseverance, your interest and investigation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.